I'm Brad Dewar. And I'm Ryan Sheffield. And this is a Texarkana Shortcut. James Britton Britt Bailey was born in North Carolina in 1779 at the height of the Revolutionary War. He settled in Kentucky, married a woman named Edith Smith, and had five children. When Edith died young, he married her sister and had six more. Her name was Nancy, or Dorothy, or Hannah, or Dot, depending on who you ask. Bailey was a big man with an even bigger personality. He was hard to ignore and even harder to forget. Before long, it seemed like everyone in the Commonwealth knew the name Britt Bailey, and it wasn't on account of his brief stint in the Kentucky legislature. Britt Bailey drank whiskey with a passion, and when he drank, he went looking for a fight. And given that he drank anytime, all the time, anywhere, everywhere, for any and no reason at all, well, he earned himself quite a reputation. Bailey raised hell in Kentucky for as long as they could stand him, but when he got slapped with a couple felony charges for counterfeiting and forgery, he reckoned it was a good time as any for a fresh start. He moved his family down to Tennessee and fought in the War of 1812 as a captain in the Navy. He was lauded for his leadership and courage and even commanded his own ship. But once the war was over, any name he made for himself in battle was quickly dragged through the filth of the barroom floor. He knew he had to find a place where things would be different for his family's sake. A place where they could finally put down roots and make a real home for themselves. A place where even a belligerent, foul-mouthed drunk could get a fair shake, maybe even belong. So in 1818, with his wife, six kids, and six slaves in tow, Britt Bailey moved to Texas. They settled on the east bank of the Brazos River in Brazoria County, acquiring the land on a grant from the Spanish government, which controlled the territory at the time. He and his slaves built a plantation with a half dozen structures, all of them painted in his favorite color, bright red. The family house was the first ever constructed in the region, and he affectionately named it Red House, because of course he did. Others had attempted to settle and build on the land in the past, but the native Karankawas ran most of them off and scalped the rest. But James Britton Bailey wasn't just another settler, and for whatever reason, your guess is as good as ours, the tribe actually seemed to like the old man. They occasionally traded wares and mostly just left him alone to do his thing. When the work was done, he christened the land in whiskey and named it after himself, Bailey's Prairie. But when Mexico won its independence in 1821, his legal claim to the land rode off with the Spanish retreat, and Bailey's Prairie was lumped into the land grant given to the fledgling impresario Stephen F. Austin. When Austin arrived with his colonists, the old 300, he brought with him the strict code of conduct Mexico required all Texians to follow including mandatory conversion and adherence to Catholicism. He committed to the belief that for his colony to thrive, it was necessary to rid the territory of, quote, degraded riffraff. When Austin learned of Bailey and his illegal claim, he sent a letter politely but sternly requesting that he vacate the land. Needless to say, Britt Bailey thought this Austin fellow sounded like an officious little prick, and he tossed the letter out in the trash heap for the possums. Once it became clear he wasn't going to get a response, Austin personally went to Bailey's Prairie to evict him. He cited the disputed land claim as justification, but Bailey disputed the dispute, prompting Austin to tick off the myriad other reasons he really wanted Bailey gone. The rabble-rousing, countless assaults, felony charges, drunkenness, vulgarity, amorality, and that stint in Kentucky prison. But Bailey laughed him off. 
Taint the forgery I'm ashamed of, he said. It's a term I served in the Kentucky legislature what sits heavy on my conscience. Austin protested, of course, but his words were met with the business end of Bailey's Kentucky flintlock, and Austin conceded the argument. For now. The feud went on for three years, and some say the two men even got into a fistfight in the streets of Brazoria. There's no record of who won, and in all likelihood it probably never happened. But if it did, our money's on Britt Bailey. Either way, Stephen F. Austin was tired of dealing with such an unreasonable bastard, and he begrudgingly recognized Bailey's right to the land as a squatter and offered him a proper league and a labor of land adjacent to his claim, about four and a half thousand acres. Whatever his reasoning, it was a hell of an olive branch, and Bailey accepted, making him and his family legal and full-fledged members of the old 300. He even agreed to swear an oath to the Mexican Constitution and serve as a captain in the 3rd Battalion of the Militia. After all, he loved a good fight. The Austin colony was growing fast. Saloons were popping up all over Brazoria, and new settlers were pouring in from all over the world. And Britt Bailey just couldn't wait to get shithoused and punch him in the face. Stories of Britt Bailey, the meanest, toughest, drunkest son of a bitch in all of South Texas, spread far and wide. Each and every one, fake, embellished, and the God's honest truth. His nightly escapades were already written into folklore by Don, even if he couldn't remember them himself. Here's just a quick sampling of Bailey's stories to give you an idea. Pour yourself some whiskey and drink along with us. But remember, there's no evidence any of this is true, but... It totally is. The only thing Bailey loved more than starting a fight was jumping in on one. Whenever he was lucky enough to be around when a fight broke out, he was known for screaming, Free fight, boys! and throwing himself into the fray. One time, Bailey ran across some of Stephen F. Austin's men hanging around outside a saloon in Brazoria, and he shouted, Prepare to fight! The men obliged, and probably gave him a pretty good beating, but he held his ground till he got his fill. That'll do, boys, he shouted, then rode off like it was nothing more than crossing an errand off his to-do list. One time, after he'd polished off a whole jug of Tennessee whiskey, Bailey set fire to his own property and just sat there laughing and pulling on a fresh jug as every structure but Red House burned to the ground. Oh, God, that was a lot of whiskey. <laughs> One time, when Bailey's wife and kids were out of town, a traveling preacher came through the prairie looking for a hot meal and a place to stay the night. The first house he passed was painted bright red, and unfortunately for the preacher, Britt Bailey answered the door, jug in hand, drunker than hell, and in the mood for a good laugh. He let the preacher in and even fed him a decent enough meal, but as soon as the plates were clean, he demanded repayment. A show. He told the preacher to strip naked and climb up on the kitchen table, punctuating the request with the cock of a shotgun. As the terrified man of God dropped his pants, Bailey called in one of his slaves and ordered him to sing a song, something the preacher could dance to. And dance he did, bouncing to the beat of the shotgun slugs ripping through the tabletop between his toes. After a song or two, Bailey let the poor man down to make himself decent, but the mortified preacher just couldn't bring himself to turn the other cheek. When Bailey set down the gun for another swig off the jug, the preacher snapped it up and gave Britt Bailey a taste of his own medicine. After a song's worth of flailing around in his birthday suit, Bailey collapsed in a fit of laughter. To the preacher's surprise, Bailey wasn't mad at all. It seems he was straight tickled pink by the sight of a reverend with a shotgun sitting front row while he gyrated his junk. The preacher lowered the gun and started laughing right along with him. 
The two split the jug and became instant friends, one of the few that Bailey likely ever had. James Britton Bailey died in 1833, one of many settlers in the colony to fall victim to the plague they called Big Cholera. When news of his death made the rounds in South Texas, it's hard to imagine there weren't a few folks who breathed a sigh of relief. <clears throat> Austin. But even in death, Bailey found a way to be a thorn in the side of the world. He left behind a handwritten will with some characteristically eccentric final requests. I'd never stoop to any man, Bailey said. And when I'm in my grave, I don't want it said, there lies old Brit Bailey. Bury me so that the world must say, there stands Bailey. And bury me with my face to the setting sun. I've been all my life traveling westward, and I want to face that way when I die. In addition to having his casket interred in an eight-foot-deep vertical grave, Bailey demanded he be buried with a few of his most prized possessions, his flintlock rifle at his side, a lantern at his feet, and the biggest damn jug of whiskey they could find. As the story's been passed down through the generations, Bailey's list of demands seemed to grow a little with each telling. A powder horn, two pearl-handled pistols, a hunting knife, 150 rifle balls, even his favorite dog. And as far as we can tell, no one ever seemed to specify the condition of said dog at the time of the burial. As troublesome as it was, his family honored his last wishes. Well, almost. The slaves lowered his casket feet first and faced to the west under a big oak tree in the family cemetery, where he could be close to the graves of his two sons who'd beat him to the other side. They put the rifle in his arms and the lantern at his feet, but the jug of whiskey never made it into the big pine box. Some folks say the slaves kept it for themselves, and once they'd tamped down the last of the dirt, they had themselves a little party on the old bastard's grave. But one of the slaves, Uncle Bubba, lived to be well over a hundred, and he tells a different story. Bubba says he did in fact put the whiskey at his master's feet, just like he promised he would. But Bailey's wife stopped him before he could nail down the lid. Fetch that jug out the box, she told him. He's already had more than enough of that in his lifetime, and I won't have him standing in judgment before St. Peter with whiskey on his breath. And with that, she reeled back and hurled the jug out into the prairie, and down went the casket and old Brit Bailey, dry as a bone. Nancy sold Red House a few years later and moved away with the kids. A young couple moved onto the land, John and Ann Thomas. Ann never liked the house, she said it made her feel uneasy in a way she couldn't quite explain. There wasn't anything wrong with it, really. It was actually pretty nice. But it felt ugly, threatening, mean. Shortly after moving in, John was away on a business trip, and Anne was sleeping alone in the master bedroom, the one where Bailey used to sleep. She jolted awake suddenly in the middle of the night, just in time to see the figure of a man standing at the foot of her bed. He was little more than a black shape, a living shadow without a face, and he was reaching for her. She screamed and pulled the blankets over her head, gasping and trembling. After a few moments of silence, she peeked out from beneath the covers. The shadow man was standing at the doorway now, and as soon as he saw her glimmering eyes, he charged. Those long black fingers curled and reaching. She screamed and suddenly he was back at the doorway. Again, he charged, and again, she screamed. And as soon as the sound left her lips, he was back at the doorway once more. The cycle repeated for hours, all through the night, 
until the morning sun swept the room and sent the shadow man back to whatever hell it crawled out from. When John finally returned from his trip, she told him what she'd seen. What, or rather whom, had attacked her and tormented her every time she tried to sleep in that room. Britt Bailey, she said. He laughed and told her she was being ridiculous, hysterical, but she was adamant, and he was a dick. So he shouted, Fine, I'll prove it to you. I'll sleep in there myself tonight. He did, and Anne bedded down in another room for the night. It was well past midnight when she was startled awake by the screams. After a well-earned told-you-so, they both agreed it was probably best if they never sleep in that room again. They sold the house not too long after. It's easy to write off the story as a textbook episode of sleep paralysis, a condition that's just as natural and common as it is terrifying. And the Thomases were the only people to ever report seeing the menacing shadow man in Red House. But they weren't the last folks who'd claimed to have seen Britt Bailey long after he'd been stuck feet first in the cold Texas earth. Not by a long shot. For decades, the residents of Red House reported all kinds of otherworldly phenomena, especially in Bailey's old bedroom. Everything from uneasy feelings to spectral fireballs manifesting in mid-air. The house was eventually torn down, and even the old oak tree that marked Bailey's grave was swept away in a storm. The cemetery's still there, but no one can say for sure where Britt Bailey's bones are standing, forever westward bound and eight feet beneath the Blackland dirt. But the reports of strange occurrences in the area just kept pouring in for the next 150 years. Bailey's League in a Labor became a small town of its own, bisected by a highway. But still, hundreds and hundreds of people, five generations of people, living in Bailey's Prairie or just passing through it, have told stories of a ball of light, sometimes as large as a basketball, hovering, bouncing, and darting across the prairie, especially in the late hours of a misty autumn night. Sometimes they just spot it off in the distance, sometimes it whizzes by while they're driving, and sometimes, for lack of a better word, it attacks. Some say they've been chased on foot for miles through the woods. Others say their engines suddenly and inexplicably cut out and refused to start, while a glowing orb aggressively circled the car, stopping for a moment to hover inches from the window, as though it were staring down the driver, sizing him up, before darting into the trees and disappearing among the branches. It's been known to pursue cars down the highway at over 60 miles an hour, and once even chased a police car all the way to the county line before evaporating into the fog. Uncle Bubba saw the light himself, many times, rising up from the cemetery grounds just beneath the old oak tree. And the explanation he gave is still the one folks believe to this day. It's the light of a lantern, the very one that Bubba himself had buried eight feet under all those years ago. It's the lantern of James Britton Bailey, the meanest, drunkest son of a bitch in all South Texas, spirited up from the grave and wandering the land he once called home forever searching for his jug of whiskey. And when he doesn't find it, he goes looking for the next best thing, a fight. If you ever find yourself down south of Houston some misty autumn night, take a little detour along Highway 35 and bring some whiskey, just in case. While you're in the area, stop and say hi to the folks down at the Brazoria County Historical Museum or the Brazoria Heritage Foundation or any local library. They have so many stories to tell and too few people asking. And if you're new to Texas and want to get the full experience, it's a great place to start. After all, you'd be hard fought to find anything more Texan 
than a pioneer ghost picking fights with the cops because he ran out of liquor. Texarkana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar. Music by Less Than One and Jason Shaw, used under Creative Commons license and available at freemusicarchive.org. In the spirit of the season, we made this Texarkana shortcut available free for everyone. But if you want more shortcuts, footnotes, interviews, and other stuff to hold you over between episodes, support us on Patreon. The more support we get, the less time we have to spend doing freelance work to pay the bills, and the more time we'll have to research, write, and bring you stories like this one. Episode 2 is on the way, and we've got a lot more to come. Thanks for listening, y'all. And happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.